We are starting a new uh, series this morning. If you're a guest with us today, it's a good time to be here, and we're grateful that you're here. We hope that uh, you'll be here for the rest of this time, uh, that this will soon be home for you. And the new series is simply called Restless, What Keeps You Up at Night? And the first of the series is My Life is Crazy Busy. Let me begin with a confession. This is the most hypocritical sermon I've preached in a long time. <laughs> so this one is for me. You are welcome to listen into it if you want to, but this one is for me. Do you ever lay in bed at night with your mind traveling at warp speed? You're desperate for sleep. Your body is so very tired, and yet you can't get your mind to shut down. It's just rumbling about all the things you've gotten done today, or it's jumbled up trying to juggle everything that you have to get done tomorrow. We are a restless generation. Our frenetic schedules keep us bouncing around like a pinball in an arcade machine. The bell just keeps dinging all over the place, but the game is never over. Do you live a crazy, busy life? 20% of our country relocates annually. Recent college graduates will have 10 different employers prior to their retirement, and they will work in three different vocations. In 1967, futurists told a Senate subcommittee that by 1985, Thanks to technological advancements, the average work week in America would be reduced to 22 hours, and the annual week's work would be mo no more than 27. What's more, the average retirement age would drop to 38. The problem they anticipated was that Americans would have too much time on their hands, and what would we do with all that time? What I want to know is who were these futurists and how much of our tax dollars was paid them for that kind of a report back in 1967. Truth be told, our technology has not shortened our work week. It has only made it more complex. You probably have more phone numbers for yourself than you have people living in your household. Online shopping has just exploded. Used things as well as new things, sell on eBay or Craigslist at the thousands per minute. We juggle responding to email, texting, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and who knows how many other social media avenues are just waiting in the wings to explode upon our culture. On average, U.S., the savings rate hit an all-time high back in 1975 at 17% of our income Today, it is less than 5%. Many households spend 100% of their take-home pay along with their debt. The average credit card debt is nearly 16000 The average mortgage is over 156000 And the average student loan stands at 33000 Some people work two to three jobs just to make ends meet. Many college students are feeling the stress of working toward a double major to increase their odds at finding an acceptable job. Speaking of double majors, I've always thought that veterinary medicine and taxidermy would make a great <laughs> double major. Sounds like a lucrative job to me, either way you get your dog back. I mean, it just sounds like a good double major. 
Another point of chaos is the fact that our culture makes us feel like we have to have the latest of everything or we're somehow out of step with our culture. So styles come and go quickly, so we buy more. The big ticket items are built with planned obsolescence. It is oftentimes more expensive to repair than it is to replace. And we enjoy such abundance that it often creates confusion. Author Bill Bryson noted that when he returned to America after 20 years abroad, that he realized that the abundance of this land is sometimes more confusing than not. This is what he wrote. Abundance of choice not only makes every transaction 10 times as long as it ought to, but in a strange way actually breeds dissatisfaction. The more there is, the more people crave, and the more they crave, the more they, well, crave more. You have a sense sometimes of being among millions and millions of people needing more and more of everything constantly, infinitely, unquestionably, end quote. I think he's got a point. The more there is, the more we want, the more confused and dissatisfied we become. Add to this the fact that families are pulled in multiple directions every week with sports leagues and school opportunities and family obligations. It's no wonder that we can't slow down. And if you want to put it all into perspective, consider this. The intellectual content of an entire lifetime for someone living in the 6th century, that is King Arthur's day and time, the entire intellectual content of a lifetime could be contained in one Sunday issue of the New York times. Now, if there's anyone in the room this morning who is not interested in simplifying his or her life, you are free to go right now. But I contend that God did not create our lives to be so fragmented and hectic. Work hard? Oh, absolutely. That's a biblical principle. Be committed to what you do? Absolutely. That, too, is a biblical uh, principle. Be torn and pulled in dozens of different directions without focus and clarity? No way. That's not a biblical principle. What can we do? Well, we're going to take a look at a story in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Because after all, I think Jesus wrote the book on simplicity. If we'll take time to understand his points. Now, th this story in Luke chapter 10 is about Jesus and his disciples stopping to visit some dear friends. This is the way it begins in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. This would have been in the community of Bethany, by the way. She had a sister called Martha who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Jesus answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. In the chaos of our Lord's life, he found peace among these friends. How ironic then that this place, this home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, would become the scene of a story that would help us understand the principles of simplicity. 
of getting away from a crazy, busy life. Now, I first, first I want to just take a look at some of the, the relationships that, that are here in the story. You, you have sibling relationship here. Mary and Martha are two of the most visible women in the New Testament. You usually find them mentioned together. But both stand on their own merits and in the service that they render to Jesus. Both of their examples, by the way, are worth imitating. Both give hope to confused parents that sisters are brothers from the same parents that are gifted completely different and act completely different are okay and that it's a good thing. Both love Jesus with all their hearts. Their home was a favorite retreat. It was one of the few places that Jesus could get away from everything else that was pressing in on him and find peace and respite. And there is, as a result, this friendship relationship here. Uh, Jesus was more than just a great leader to this family. He was their friend. When many were plotting the death of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were celebrating who he was and his life. Such is the power of friendship. When you really, when you really love somebody as a friend, it, it just is a gift from God. When you are loved by somebody as a friend, it's even a greater gift. To have entertained the Lord in their home must have been some of their most cherished moments. When I, when I was a kid, we often had visiting missionaries that would come for dinner or supper in our home. I remember those moments powerfully. They, they impacted my life so much as I listened to these people who from around the world had come to this little town of Huntingburg to share their story. Can't you imagine Mary and Martha years later looking back and saying, wasn't it wonderful when Jesus sat at our table? The Lord himself. Those friendship relationships can change our lives, not just for the moment, but forever if we will cherish those beautiful times. I'm reminded of the beautiful old hymn, the words of which go like this, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. Do you know him as a friend this morning? And out of this sibling and friendship relationship, we see three distinct attitudes represented here. Uh, there is, first of all, Jesus' attitude. And you've got to understand, at this point in time, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. This is the last autumn of his life. By springtime, he will be crucified. He is on his way to Jerusalem for the task for which he was born into this world, to bring redemption. There is a weight, a burden. At this moment, the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, is upon his heart and mind, and he knows where he's going and why he's going, and he's going there so that we might have life. And on this journey to Jerusalem, he pauses to find some respite here. He had no other place to go. Remember his own words? He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So his time was spent under an olive tree on a hillside or next to a campfire by the water's edge at Galilee's sea in the stern of a fishing boat. Not much of a place for the Creator himself. And so as close as he ever got to having a home was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' place in Bethany. 
Martha's attitude is, is quite a contrast to Jesus. He's carrying the weight of the world right now. Martha's is, is one of, of deep frustration at the circumstances of the moment. Here, her name, Martha, actually comes from the same root word as we get the, root, the, the word master. And, and she is the oldest sibling. It was her home. That's what Luke tells us. And so that probably means she's the oldest. Mary and Lazarus are younger siblings. They live there together. Mary, or excuse me, Martha is the firstborn then. That tells us a lot. I think that is part of the reason why she is. She was the hostess at heart. And I truly believe she wanted Mary to have that same passion. And Mary just didn't. So imagine what is happening on that fall afternoon in Bethany. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing everything the master has to say, while Martha makes haste to prepare an evening meal. Not an ordinary meal. This has got to be top-notch because Jesus is here. They've already come to believe who he is. She knows this is the Savior, the Messiah, under her roof, eating at her table. She is making this a special night. At first, she can hear the conversation in the next room, and then as busier she gets, it sort of comes a drone, and she begins to miss out. Supper had to be just right. The fruit had to be washed. The olives had to be gathered. The meat sauce had to be simmered for a while longer, and the bread had to be made. Kneading the dough was not hard work, unless, of course, you're doing everything else for supper all by yourself while Jesus is in the next room and your lazy sister is at his feet. <laughs> and I can just see Martha pounding the dough. Every time she kneads the dough, it gets a little bit harder. And finally, she just can't take it anymore, and she comes into the room with sticky dough still on her fingers, and she says, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? And then she goes on, that my sister isn't in this room helping me. You tell her to help me. Martha is hot. She doesn't even address Mary. She didn't go in and say, Mary, would you mind coming and helping me? <laughs> She's mad. She didn't even call her by name, my sister. <laughs> and in unsheathing her tongue, she reveals her anger, anger that is double-edged. On the one side, she cuts Jesus, accusing him of lacking concern. On the other, she cuts Mary, accusing her of laziness. Notice the response of Jesus to Martha. He disarms her. Martha, Martha. Have you ever noticed the number of times when a person's name is used twice in Scripture? Or a name, Jesus weeps over the city that he loved. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have pulled you to myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks, and you would have none of me. Or Peter on the night before the trial. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. On the road to Damascus, blinding light, in the voice of Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If Jesus were here this morning, would he have to say your name twice to get your attention? Tom, Tom, why are you so busy that you cannot find time for me? Would that be your story? And then, and then you got to see Mary's attitude. 
She is reflective. She is making the most of the moment with Jesus. She's not thinking about the physical food that Martha is preparing. She's focused on feasting at the words of Jesus. Mary had her priorities straight, at least at this moment. I'm not saying she always did, but she did at this moment. Martha, however, was working on a gourmet meal that a few hours later would mean very little because they'd all be hungry again. Isn't that something? You know, I, I love a great meal, but the next day or in a few hours, I'm hungry again. Martha was consumed with the physical. Mary was feasting on the spiritual. And here's the thing about the words of Jesus. They are eternal. And in about two months... Martha was going to need what Jesus was saying. In about two months, their brother would die. In, in two months, Jesus would tarry four days. In, in two months, she would find this anger coming up again in her heart, in her throat, because Jesus didn't show up to, to save Lazarus. And when he finally does show up in Bethany, there is that same tone in her voice, Lord, if you had been here, Lord, don't you care? Is what she's saying, that my brother died. Same same voice. Had she been at the feet of Jesus, she might have seen a different side to that story, but she was busy with the bread in the kitchen. Do you know what's anything unique about the story? When Jesus came in and started teaching, he didn't say, Martha, come in here. Forget about the meal. Well, we'll eat something later. Just come in here and listen. Never said that. Jesus didn't beg her to his feet. Because Jesus never does that. The invitation is there, whether we choose it or not. He does not beg. He does not plead. He does not coerce. And so if you ignore him, he will let you ignore him. But I'm here to tell you, if you do, you will miss that one thing which is so important. Him. Now, please hear me. Martha's not the bad person in the story, and Mary, the good person. They, they both have great skills. I mean, Martha was practical. Mary was pensive. Martha was meticulous. Mary meditative. Martha was a bit impulsive. Mary was a bit impetuous. Isn't it great that God created us all with our unique personalities and uses all of us, that everybody is necessary in the kingdom of God, that every personality has its niche to feel in, fill in God's service? I'm more like Martha Sometimes I wish I was more like Mary, but I'm not. I'm a firstborn. I think that has something to do with it. I think there are some patterns that are there. I'm just telling you that God can use all of us no matter what our background is, but there is a balance to be achieved between these two. Finding the right formula is critical. I like the way John Hambly put it. He said, sitting without serving is powerless. Serving without sitting is directionless. Serving after sitting produces power and balance. It is both that are needed in our lives. Well, that brings us to this whole point. That's the relationships in the story, but then it brings us to our choices in the story. And so I want to just highlight a few of these. Here, here's the first one. Be focused. Take a rifle approach to life, not a shotgun, which goes off on all directions at once. Jesus said, one thing is needed, and that is a relationship with him. When we set that as our first priority, other decisions will come more easily. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says, God made men and women true and upright. We're the ones who made a mess of things. And it's true. 
You know, this, this mess of hectic chaoticness is our fault. So, we need to get focused. One thing is needed, Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing, slow down. Now, that is so much easier to say than it is to do. One expert on stress wrote this. He said, many people write adrenaline prescriptions for their bodies 20 to 30 times a day as if they were fighting saber-toothed tigers all the time. You don't want to overdo the adrenaline rushes just to get things done. Slow down. Our overcommitted schedules lead to stress. Stress leads to worry. Worry leads to anger. And anger leads to everything else but a simple, pleasant life. And it's hard to be right with the Lord when you're angry with the world around you. Finding the simple life is nothing new. I mean, it's been a problem always, even in Mayberry. When the visiting preacher, Dr. Bream, came to town, guess what was the topic of his sermon? Well, just watch. My friends... I wish more of us found the time to ask that question. Why do we drive ourselves as we do in our furious race these days to conquer outer space? Are we not perhaps forgetting inner space? Shall we find the true meaning of life by fleeing from it? <laughs> Consider, consider how we live our lives today. <laughs> Everything is run, run, run. We bolt our breakfast, we scan the headlines, we race to the office. The full schedule and the split second, these are our gauges of success. We drive ourselves from morn to night. We have forgotten the meaning of the word relaxation. What has become of the old-fashioned ways the simple pleasures of us. A simple, innocent pleasure. And so I say to you, dear friends, relax. Slow down. Take it easy. Watch your hurry. <laughs> what indeed, friends, is your hurry? See, we've been trying for a long time to find that slower-paced life. It doesn't matter when. And so the question begs an answer. What indeed is your hurry? You know, to slow down, sometimes you have to learn not just to say yes to everything, but occasionally to say no. It is an adequate response. Hard, yes, but sometimes maybe the most important response. Slowing down is the key to building relationships. When you're going at an unrealistic pace, you will not have time to build lasting relationships. I think if I had to pick my favorite vegetable, it would be green beans. And I've learned after all these years, it's not the flavor of fresh green beans that makes them my favorite. It's what I learned with green beans. You say, what? There is something unique about home canned green beans. When I was growing up, my grandparents always had a big garden, and at the right time of the year, mom and grandma would can green beans. I'm sure many of your families did the same thing. I remember the big old 
copper wash boiler and the fire that was built under it and then the quartz, the many quartz of green beans packed in there. But the green beans had to be broken before all that could happen. And even as a kid, I ended up helping break green beans, not because I liked to break green beans, but because I really did like sitting out under the pear tree with a pan of those on my lap and listening to my grandparents tell the stories of what it was like when they were kids and where they grew up and how they lived and everything else. I was mesmerized by their stories. And you say, wouldn't it have been a lot easier just to buy a can of Stokely's or Del Monte at the store? Yeah, it would have been a lot easier. But I, but I would have missed all of those moments with my grandparents and, that, and that's really what mattered. It, it was not the green beans in the quartz. It was the relationships in the circle under the tree that made all the difference. Because you had to slow down to break green beans. Slow down. Take time to build lasting relationships and memories that you will enjoy for the lifetime. What's your hurry? Move over. Get out of the passing lane and let the world go on around you. We need not succumb to the pressure to spend ourselves into debt to have what is the latest, newest, and shiniest what's it on the market. Now, there's nothing wrong with having the newest what's it on the market unless it straps your budget, sends you into debt, creates more stress, and you can't really enjoy it, and you're not buying it for the right reason. Then the what's it doesn't matter. It's only a curse and not a blessing. I want to I learn that lesson. I want to learn what the Apostle Paul learned when he wrote these words to the church at Philippi in chapter 4. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Just exactly how content are you this morning? And if you aren't, why aren't you? Is it because Jesus Christ comes too far down on our list? Maybe the one thing that is needed isn't there yet. Here's the last thing. Cheer up. The very nature of the rat race makes rats out of all of us. Most people don't seem happy in the midst of chaos. Our nerves are shot. It's like our lives are on a tightrope every day. One small push, one small misstep, and we fall off the wire. And for some of us, there is no safety net below to catch us. That's why we need to start facing life through the perspective of joy. That regardless of what happens, that we maintain a positive outlook on life. Nothing is so bad or so bleak that you can't find some way to be joyful even in the midst of heartbreak. Angela locked her keys in the car. When she discovered the error of locking her keys in the car, she vowed that somehow, most of the time, she would just explode at a moment like that, but she vowed that somehow she would find the positive in this circumstance. She looked around for a moment, and and there on the ground, she found a coat hanger, and so she started to unwind the coat hanger, thought, maybe I can do this, and so she prayed, Lord, I've never done this before. I desperately need your help. My keys are locked in the car. About a minute later, a rough-looking biker pulled up next to her and offered his help. In less than a minute, he had the car unlocked and the door open, and she just prayed out loud, thank you, Lord, for sending this nice man to help me. And he said, lady, I am not a nice man. I just got out of prison for stealing cars. (laughs) And she threw her arms around him and hugged him and prayed out loud, Lord, thank you for sending a professional. (laughs) 
Look for the positive in everything, all right? Even when things seem bleakest, you can find a sense of joy if you'll look. If you're stuck in a dull routine, start doing some fun things. What's fun for you? Don't have to be fun for anybody else. If fun for you is finding a day where you do nothing but read a book, then find a day and read a book. If fun for you is climbing a mountain, then go find a mountain to climb. Find what's fun for you. Laugh more. Read funny things. Watch good humor. Spend more time and resources on relationships. Go can some beans with those you love. Enjoy the simple everyday things. <laughs> Tonight there is a lunar eclipse. It is a blood moon. It's one of those things that doesn't happen hardly ever. Won't go fast. We'll go outside and watch it if the sky is clear. <laughs> I understand that Tim is hoping that it has something to do with end times prophecy so he doesn't have to plan a Christmas program this year. <laughs> Don't know that it has anything to do with end time prophecy, but, but it is a unique moment in nature. Watch. Watch a butterfly go from flower to flower. Count the minutes it takes a caterpillar to cross your driveway. Stop and really watch a sunset. Robin Myers wrote, in every waking hour a sacred theater is in session, played out before an audience that is largely blind. Are you blind to the creation around you? Don't miss the pageant of God's creative genius every day. Play a game with friends or family that doesn't require a board or cards or batteries. Invest more energy in serving others instead of always focusing on yourself. Spend time with children. If nobody else can cheer you up, a child can. To simplify our lives, we need to remember these eight words. Be focused. Slow down. Move over. Cheer up. And I know of only one who can help us accomplish all of that. One thing is needed, and it's him.